I want you to go to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and let's just read one verse. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Underline, circle the phrase, Son of God. So today in our Who is Jesus series, we want to talk about his claim to be the Son of God. A little background story. The previous verses of John chapter 5, if you look in the very first 10 or 12 verses of John chapter 5, you see a man who's an invalid lying on a mat near a pool called Bethsaida. And apparently this pool, would, the waters would stir occasion this pool, and the people believed that it had miracle powers, that there were, were cures available for those who could get in the water. This man had been an invalid for 38 years, and we don't know how many years his family or friends brought him to this place every day, obviously with the hope that he would make it into the water when the waters were stirred and there was a cure available. Jesus comes by and picks out this guy who's on a mat, this guy who's an invalid, and he says to him, take up your mat and walk. And the man says, well, I, I, I would like to be healed, but I can't get in the pool. And Jesus just re reiterated, take up your mat and walk. And the man realized he was cured and he got up and walked. And there's a, there's a lot of preaching right there, right? And some of us don't even realize that we are already, we're already cured. We're already healed. We're, our lives are already changed if we would just rise up and possess what we have. Now, you would think that the community would be very excited. You would think that the temple leaders in particular, who had been entrusted with the spiritual welfare of the nation of Israel, you would think that they would have given Jesus some kind of community service award. But instead, you read the narrative in John chapter 5. We jump into the story at verse 16. Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day. Now I want you to underline that. That's, that's what we're going to build the whole message on this morning. My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all, the, you know, you'd think, okay, when they heard that, now, now they're going to bring out the community award for community service. But no, the Bible says, for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show you even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Now, so today I want to talk to you about the fact that Jesus was something that you are not, and why that matters. That Jesus was something that you are not, and why that matters. Jesus was telling them, I am something that you are not, 
and it matters. Jesus said three words that changed the conversation forever. And those words were, my father works. These words, as the text indicates, makes Jesus equal with God. But not everybody agrees, right? Muslims speak highly of Jesus, but they list him among 124,000 prophets that have been sent to God by God to various cultures. Judaism considers him a good and martyred rabbi. Jehovah's Witness believed Jesus was the archangel Michael, who was sent to earth to live a perfect life, and he pulled it off. The Christian scientists believe that Jesus was a mere man who displayed the Christ idea. Buddhism believes that Jesus was an enlightened man. Hinduism believes that he was a holy man, a wise teacher. Some Hindus even believe that Jesus was a deity or a god among their pantheon of thousands of gods. Secularists see Jesus as the original social warrior. Mormons speak highly of Jesus Christ, but do not believe that he was God. Pastor Chuck Chuck Ambremsky tells of a conversation with a Mormon believer. He asked him one day as he was working on a, at an office, he said who, he, he knew this guy was a Mormon. And he said, who is Jesus? And this Mormon believer said, he's a God. And Chuck says, okay, is he equal to the father and distinct as the son? The Mormon said, no, no. He is a spirit child of the heavenly father and the heavenly mother. The older brother of all human spirits. And Chuck says, okay, how did he become a God? The Mormon believer said, well, he did good works. Chuck says, okay, what kind of good works does one have to do to become a God? Well, he goes, you have to be faithful to the Mormon church leaders. You have to have a Mormon marriage. You have to participate in secret temporal rituals. And you have to be a member of the Mormon church. So Chuck says, okay, I got two, two questions for you. One is Jesus lived 1,800 years before Joseph Smith. 1,800 years before Mormonism started in 1830. How could he have been a member of the Mormon church? And how could he have done all those good works that you talk about? And he said, well, I, I don't know. He said, also, my second question is, can a liar become a God? And he said, no, you couldn't be a liar and become a God. He said, well, what if I could show you from the Bible that Jesus claimed to be God, equal to the Father, but distinct as the Son? Would he be a liar? And the guy says, yes. And he says, Chuck, ask him, so how can he be a God? And the Mormon believer said, I have to go ask my uncle. I'm telling you, this may not be quite as touchy-feely as a sermon on anxiety. I get it. I understand it. Because anxiety is where we live. We all live with anxiety. We all live with fear and doubt. So a sermon on Sunday morning that has a direct therapeutic value 
may be a little more interesting to us and maybe a little more exciting to us. I understand that. I get that. I'm the same way. I'm like you. I'm always looking for something to help me navigate the difficulties and rigors of life. But I want to tell you as far as really changing the foundation of your life, as far as really changing the foundation of who you are, the foundation of your relationships, how you view the world, and all of your moral and philosophical decisions, nothing is as important as who you believe Jesus is. Nothing is as important as who you see him. And if you truly see him as the son of God, equal with God and distinct as the son of God, it is the most powerful principle on the earth. Let's examine this. Let's unpack this. Let's unpack whether this was a rational reaction to Jesus saying my father works, was their reaction, the temple leaders and many others, was their reaction a rational reaction? That's the first thing I want to impact with you this morning. The temple leaders were bothered that he healed the sick on the Sabbath, but homicidal when he referred to God as my father. Now, you wouldn't respond that way. If I use the phrase, my father in heaven, I must work the works of my father, you wouldn't give it a second thought. And you might think that's because we're more enlightened. We're the 21st century. And we're just more enlightened. We have science. We are more enlightened. I will propose to you it's the opposite. Their reaction is because they were more enlightened than we are. That we are more ignorant of what that really means for a person to come into our, our, our space and refer to God as their personal father. I propose to you they were more informed and we are more ignorant. See? I totally get why civil libertarians want to remove crosses from landmarks. We think, well, what's the big deal? Just a cross on a fire station or a cross on a memorial to veterans. It's just a cross. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? What's the big deal? Only a cross? The civil libertarians, which is, which is uh, ironic, that civil libertarians want to remove the cross. They want to remove religious liberty. That's kind of ironic, isn't it? But it's because they better than the people in most of our churches really understand the power of Christ. They really understand the power of the cross. They really understand that the cross represents a kingdom that challenges their kingdom. They really, they really understand that it represents a ruler that challenges their rulership. They really understand that it represents a Lord that, that challenges their own personal lordship. They really understand that it is one who is overall judge of all, master of all, power over all, who comes to earth not to take sides, but to take over. 
They understand that. It's actually irrational not to have an extreme reaction to Jesus Christ. It's actually not thinking to have a tepid, mediocre, lukewarm response to the statement, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. My Father works and I work. You look at through the New Testament and you see this extreme reaction from positive and negative. God spoke out of heaven. When Jesus was baptized, this is my son, whom I'm well pleased. During the 40 days of temptation, the devil said three times, if you are the son of God. That's all the devil wanted to talk about. That's all he was worried about. He wasn't worried about Jesus healing some sick people. He wasn't worried about Jesus doing some social good in the community. Jesus wasn't worried about him. I mean, the devil wasn't worried about him being a good man. Satan wasn't worried about him being a powerful political leader. He couldn't have cared less about Jesus becoming a powerful political leader. He couldn't have cared less if Jesus wanted to become a general and amass an army and, and, and try to take over the world. He couldn't have cared less about that. But he really cared about Jesus being the Son of God. In Mark 11, evil spirits announced him as the Son of God, not in praise, but in terror. What have I to do with thee, they said. What have we have to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment us not. When some members of Jesus' family, you think, well, Jesus' family, I'm sure they got it. When they heard that Jesus was going around saying he was the son of God and he was healing the sick, you know what, they, you know what you know his family, brothers and sisters said? Oh, isn't it great, our brother? He, yes, he finally understands who he is. No, you know what they said? You, you can read it for yourself in Mark 3.21. He's out of his mind. <laughs> and I love the scene there. I love the scene when I, when I, in counseling, when I teach people about finding their own voice in life. And I try to teach people about a term called self-differentiation. I try to talk about that in counseling. I use this example. Jesus was at this house acting like the Son of God, and his family came to get him and bring him home. Come to your senses. Some of you understand that. You understand when you start, when you try to differentiate yourself from your family and become what God wants you to be, your family comes and gets you and drags you back. They don't want you, you know, they're like a bunch of crabs in a pot. You don't have to put a lid on, the, on a crab pot because they'll drag it. One crab starts to get out, the other will grab it and pull them down. That's the way families are that are. I told somebody this morning that but this church family puts the fun back in dysfunction. Even John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, had a moment of doubt when they imprisoned him. And he, he sent this word to Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one or should we look for another? Simon Peter declared and got the Lord's commendation when he said in Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. The Jews in John chapter 5 that we just read in verse 18, they became homicidal and tried the more to kill him. To, to, to illustrate how much we humans don't want any other God, 
but us. And, and that's the heart problem we have. That's the sin nature we have, that we don't want any other God except for us. Even after, I believe the count is right, something like 13 post-resurrection appearances in which he did everything. This is after Jesus died and rose again. He did everything from appearing out of thin air, walking through the wall, letting someone touch, stick their finger in his side uh, to feel the wound that was there, touch the nail prints in his hand. In Matthew 28, 17, near near the end of the gospel narrative, the Bible says this amazing sentence. But some doubted. <laughs> See, so, some of us here today, we believe if the Lord would do something fantastic, we would all, everybody would believe. He already did something fantastic, yeah. But, but you think, and if, if I could see someone's arm get cut off and you walked over and in the name of Jesus, picked it up and put it back on their body, then I would become a believer in Jesus and everybody in town would become a believer in Jesus. We would, the whole nation to be saved because we'd have a video on somebody's iPhone of that album. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. We will not believe. Listen, the Bible keeps being correct. And I'm still waiting on it to be incorrect about anything. And the Bible tells us that in the very end of time, one of the final scenarios before we enter the new age and the new heaven and the new earth is Christ appearing, appearing to make war on those who are determined for him not to be Lord, and they fight against him. Now, you may find that incredible, but I see it, I see it a consistent narrative throughout Scripture and throughout society that we resist his lordship. Matthew 28, 17, some doubt it. That's amazing, isn't it? It argues against that. If we could see a miracle, we would believe. And that brings us to the understanding of the significance of Jesus saying, my father works. And I want to, I want to share with you four significance, under, significant understandings that made the temple leaders determined to kill him. One, it's meant that Jesus shared equality with God. We've already made that point. In authority, immortality in nature. There's two Greek words for the sign that are used in the New Testament, technon and hulios. Technon means the descendant of another. That word, technon, is never used when it's used for the Son of God, never. Hulios means the, the heir, the one who receives the inheritance. Hulios is the word that is always used for Jesus. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus wrote, I and the Father are one. Great scholar I.T. Robertson says, the tense of the pronoun one. The tense of the pronoun one here indicates not just one in purpose, but one in essence and nature. Jesus was saying, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. A second understanding, a significant understanding of Jesus saying, I am, my father works and I work, is it meant that Jesus had a superior standing with God. 
Philippians 2, 6, 7 says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in a human form. See, the temple leaders would have been okay if Jesus hadn't used healing and helping the poor to prove his equality with God. They would have been okay if he would have healed people within their box, within their confines. They would have been okay if he had helped the poor and healed the poor, but not not to prove his equality with God. If he had been like Rome, who allowed them to be power brokers, they would have switched teams in a moment. See, these temple leaders were in league with Rome. There was a corrupt power political system. If you notice through the Gospels, you will see two different groups of people talked about. Pharisees, tax collectors. And there's, there, there's Sadducees too, but that, we won't get into who they are. They're, but I want to talk about talking about two groups. There's Pharisees and tax collectors. The temple leaders were the religious guys. They were the Pharisees. And the tax collectors were the conduit between Rome and, and Zion, Israel. And they had a deal with Rome. They were, they were collecting taxes with Rome, and the more collect, taxes they collected with Rome, the more prominent they were. And so they were oppressing the common people. The Bible says the common people heard the Lord gladly. That's why the movement of the kingdom of God into a community, when the kingdom of God truly comes into a community, it always majors on biblical justice to those who are down and defeated and in trouble. Because Jesus came and the people who were being oppressed by this tremendous amount of tax that were put on them by Rome and it would not work without certain Jewish people cooperating. And then there were the temple leaders. The temple leaders also charged a tax for being a part of the temple. So there was the threat of eternal hell if you didn't pay the temple tax. And so they had a system going with Rome that was all sweet and cozy for them, and they didn't want anything to change. And the only thing, the change they would have ever allowed, if Jesus would have emerged as a political leader who could defeat Rome, then they would have joined Jesus' team in a minute. But Jesus came to them, and, and, and the nail in his coffin was, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Now we know in a sense his kingdom is in this world, but he said not of this world. He didn't say it wasn't in this world, but he said it's not of this world. In fact, the kingdom has come. I said the kingdom has come. We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord was not about to continue the lousy, sorry, oppressive will of man for one more day. He wasn't going to be a part of that. And so the Lord defied them. We're going to come back to that point in just a minute because I want to give you this. And this, this is going to, going to bless you. It blesses me. I'll, I'll put it that way. Because Jesus' statement, I work, my, my father works and I work, meant that God loves sinners and treated them with dignity. 
I mean, this is the core of the gospel. See, there's a very interesting statement in John chapter 9 after a man was healed of blindness. And the, again, it was almost the same scenario. Who healed you? How did, what did he have a right to heal you? Did he heal you on, on, on the Sabbath? Who was this guy? He's a, he's a sinner. They, they said, this man was a sinner. We think it was a sinner that healed you. And he's like, I don't know. Did he heal me? How, how could he heal me? Then he makes this statement. He makes this statement. We know that he couldn't have been a sinner because God does not heal sinners. He said, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. Now, I read that the other day, and I think about that. You know, here's the a, here's a thing you got to be careful when you read the Bible. Now, there's some of you going to think I'm a heretic right now. Everything that they say in the Bible isn't true. The Bible says some things that aren't true. You've got to look at the Scripture and see who's talking. And what they're saying, a lot of lies are told by people in the Bible. Everything that Scripture is not true. And I could give you like, you want to stay till 2 o'clock? We'll just give you a lot of examples. <laughs> but you don't, so I'm going to just, just take my word for it. That wasn't true. That God didn't listen to sinners. That man was parroting back what the temple leader said. He was parroting back to them. He was tying them up in a knot using their own argument. But what he said wasn't true. Because Jesus went around listening to sinners all the time. And that's the core of the gospel that God listens to broken, sorry, rascally sinners. I thought you'd get more excited about that. I really did. I just, I had, I had in my notes, uh, talk softly here. They're going to get excited. You know, you don't have to shout. And finally, it meant that God was not in agreement with their political aspirations. I've already kind of made that point, haven't I? We've already talked about Christ's disinterest in their political games in which the common man was the loser. Jesus Christ's movement was a populist movement. You know, the Jews did not crucify Jesus. It was just a few temple leaders that crucified him. The Jews, the masses loved him. The masses wanted him as their king. He was a friend. The Bible says the common people heard the Lord gladly. See, our hyper-focus, you see, we haven't seen the political ramifications of the story. We haven't seen this clash of kingdoms partly because, uh, and I, I, I believe in eternal salvation. I believe, that, I believe in heaven and all of that, but our hyper-focus on being saved for heaven has blinded us to the clash of kingdoms. So it causes us to not understand our own battle with being, with being rescued. It causes us to under, not understand what we're being rescued from. We're not just being rescued from these morally bad behaviors. We are, yes, thank God, we are being rescued from morally bad behaviors. But this is a lot deeper than morally bad behaviors. We're being rescued from a world, a corrupt world system. A, cor a corrupt world system that is so hopeless, it will never get fixed. So hopeless that we will never change it, no matter how much we vote or how much we pick it, it will never get fixed because Jesus Christ came to be the Lord of the earth. Jesus Christ came to be the king of the world. Jesus Christ has been installed by God. It's such an amazing thing that even on the cross, they couldn't resist it. They couldn't avoid it. It happened. They got put right on the cross. Jesus Christ, king of the Jews. 
What I'm telling you is you become a, you're a part of something bigger than just your own wonderful personal salvation. It, as amazing and as wonderful as that is. C.S. Lewis said it like no other. And I, I, I know this is a long quote, but I want to put it on the wall for you. Mm, probably half of you have seen this before, and the other half maybe have not. C.S. Lewis said it like no other. You, you can't preach an apologetic sermon without quoting C.S. Lewis, or you're a, you are a heretic. Right? you got to quote. I, did you notice I didn't t- quote Tim Keller once today? I didn't quote Tim Keller once. I, I, I made a decision this week. I am not going to quote Tim Keller once. C.S. Lewis, though, who, who Tim Keller always quotes, <laughs> said... I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people say about him, Jesus, he means. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. But I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Boy, that is great work. Now I want to close today with the fresh perspective that comes from saying, my father works. It's a new, I believe, exciting perspective. To to grasp this new way of looking to God, to grasp this new way of looking to God, others and self, let's look at the significance found in the bookends of this section of of John 5 that I'm preaching about. On one side is the healing of the invalid. On the other side... Is Christ's assertion that he is God's, and this is a very important, I chose my words carefully here. He is God's entrusted judge of mankind. Let's read it. Psalms, uh, John, I'm not Psalms, I don't know why I want to do Psalms. Psalms is what I would read in the hospital. John chapter 5, verse 8. Jesus told him, Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath, so the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. Moreover, the father, Joseph, and I'm, gonna, I'm skipping down to verse 22 now. I'm skipping over what we read in the beginning. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will will not be condemned. He is crossed from death to life. Now believe me, there's a sermon or a sermon series. And this one idea of the fresh perspective I'm going to have to give it you my best shot in like three minutes. The sign of God works. But what does this story in verse 8 through 10, in the summary of his purpose in verse 22 through 24, 
verses 22 through 24. What do they clarify about what that work is? What is the work of God? What is the work of Jesus? Well, according to Zephaniah 3.9, the Lord dispenses justice. Now, we know day one through six, the Lord ceased from work. So whatever he did on day seven is the kind of work he does seven days a week, 365 days a year. Well, the Bible is very clear on that. And if these, if these boneheads in the temple would have been honest enough to read their own scripture, they would have seen that there's a kind of work that God does every second of every day. Somebody's going to get excited here. I just, I just feel it. Just, just Zephaniah 3, 5, the Lord dispenses justice morning by morning. According to Lamentations 3, 22, 3, 23, his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Anybody starting to catch on? According to the law of Moses, you were permitted to rescue your animal that has fallen into the ditch even on the Sabbath. So Jesus turned the temple leader's gotcha moment into a human hope moment. And it reveals that seven days a week, 365 days of the year, God is rescuing humans from the consequences of their sin and showing them mercy. Mercy and justice are synonymous with Jesus. You know that? The work of God is making wrong things right, broken things whole. The word whole occurs five times in this story. We didn't even get time to preach about it this morning. Jesus further clarified his purpose for his sonship in verse 22 when he claimed that he was the final judge of all humanity. Now, I can hear somebody here say this morning, there you go with your Christian judging. You Christians are always using your Christian's rules to judge us, to tell us that we're doing wrong. Did you know something? That judgment is synonymous with compassion. If there weren't any judges in courts, there would be no protection from injustice and evil. Someone could steal your money, abuse your children, destroy your property, and it would do no good to call the police because no court would find them guilty and no court would make them restitution or make them pay. You cannot have compassion without judgment. Furthermore, did you know that God, now here's the exciting part, that God sees all human beings as victims of Satan. All the way back to Adam and Eve, Christ the judge of all is on a mission to declare you. Listen to this. If you have, if you have the capability of being excited, you're going to be excited on this. <laughs> God is the judge of all is on a mission to declare you not guilty. <laughs> wow, that was good. That was good. Whenever people took the posture with Christ... I'll let you be my judge and tell me what to do. Christ says, rise and walk. Be healed. See. Raised from the dead. For years, people have been asking that question. How could a loving God send people to hell? That is the totally wrong question. The right question is, how can a loving God stop us from going there? That's the right question. 
It's like Neil Gorsuch when he's being uh, questioned this past week. He said, when I give a ruling, 50% are happy and 50% are not. Christ has an option. Christ has an option, though, that Neil Gorsuch will never have. Christ has an option that he will never have and the option that, that God has, the option that Christ has is to ask you, would you like to come over to the side of those who are victims of sin and injustice? Do, would you like mercy? Would you like to begin to live in mercy in a part of a kingdom that dispenses mercy? And when we say yes, then he gives us mercy. He makes us victims advocates. That's the transformation. That's the transformation that happens. So would you like to throw yourself on the mercy of God, of the righteous judge who made it his seven-day-a-week assignment to declare you not guilty and to set you on a mission of dispensing biblical and merciful justice throughout the earth? Please say yes. First season is going to share a song with us. We're going to come back and pray. Normally, we invite you to the front. We have communion and prayer partners. We knew today would be a little longer service, and we knew we want you to come out tonight. So we chose not to do that. But I want to pray, and I just have a feeling that somebody in this room, you've messed around long enough with whether you're going to follow Jesus and whether you're going to see him as equal to God, distinctly the Son of God, and you're going to become one of his, and you're going to join his kingdom march toward compassion and justice for the world. When I come back, I want to pray a prayer, and I want some of you to pray that prayer with me, and I want you to cross the line of faith into the kingdom of God. You have been listening to the Bethany Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us online at bccma.org. Thank you, and God bless.